I'm Daniel Lekis and welcome to Book 101. Book 101 is all about the books that I read for the last 40 years and today I have my special guest. She's the author of Char and Us, Judge of a Mystic Psychic, no other than Misafa Burnell. Hi, hi, I'm Safa Burnell, a Canadian author of the Usurper King's Poetry Collection, Cyberpunk Works Neon Lieben and Cagewire, and the Mythpunk Works Top Shelf and Coco Craze, both of which are system agnostic TTRPGs, and my newly released Mythpunk novel, Chair and Ash, which is Judge of Mystic Saga Book One. A true punk, my worth focuses on the intersection between queerness and faith and faith and futurist science. I write about the ethics of AI, comparative mythology, and I lead critique streams on Twitch twice a week. You can find me everywhere online at usurperkings or at safaburnell.com. Interesting, Miss Burnell. And I learned that you are from Norway and now you are a Canadian. Yes. Tell us about it. So I spent the majority of my life in Canada, but uh, my family would go back and forth. Um, I come from Norwegian background, and we spoke Norwegian in the home all through my childhood until my my grandfather got uh, got ill, you know. And I suppose my Scandinavian culture has been something that I've really held on to here in Western Canada, especially you know those days when you get a little bit homesick. It's really nice to be able to jump into your car and drive down the Sea to Sky Highway, which reminds me a lot of driving in Norway with the fjords. I want to shout out to the people listening in Norway because I have a lot of listeners in Norway. Can you greet them in your language? Hi, hi. Yes, Norway, thank you for supporting this podcast. Oslo County, I get 55% audience share. Baskerud at 13%. Rogaland at 6%. Viking at 6%. More Og Ramsdal at 6%. Vestfold at 3%. Inlandet at 3%. Westland at 3%. Trondelag at 3%. And last but not the least, Telemark at 3%. Mm. Thank you, Norway. So you're saying that Norway and Canada, they have the same atmosphere? I think parts of Norway have a similar atmosphere for me to different parts of Canada. You know, you get some of the more kind of, like I remember going to some, you know, smaller fishing villages on the coast and it reminding me of Newfoundland and, uh, you know, outside of Halifax in Nova Scotia and then driving up the coast here in BC, driving up the sea to sky reminds me so much of some of the landscapes that I would see with my aunts and my family in Trondheim, and, uh, which is up north. Not quite Arctic Circle, but, you know, it's it's getting there. There's that kind of cosly feel, like that kind of comfy, cozy, like, you know, the Higa. And um, there's that, that 
cozy kind of cozy feel that you can get on the west coast here around Vancouver, especially during the winter time when it starts getting drizzly and wet, and everything's just a little bit cold. So people kind of get into their comfy sweaters and they make you know some coffee or some tea or something, and they curl up with a book. It's that feeling, it's that sensation that I get in both places. Um, but again, I've spent most of my time in Canada, even though I have been, uh, you know, <laughs> yes, you know, it's still my first love. <laughs> yes, definitely. So, yeah. Miss Bernal, what age did you realize that you're good in writing? So, we actually have some books, like uh, coloring books, from when I was three years old, where I started writing poems. Oh, wow. Instead of coloring in the pictures, I would use that paper to like write little stories, you know, little, my dog did this, my, you know, little tiny things like that. But there was never a time in my life where I did not have some form of pen or pencil or eventually a keyboard in hand. So it just became a very natural part of my life. I knew I was going to be a creator. I started performing on stage by the time I was around four years old. And so it just naturally came from that, you know, I, I learned how to act, I had, you know, different acting coaches and things. And then I realized, huh, if I act in my head, like a certain character, and then write it down, I'm writing a book. Oh, wow, you know, mind blown. And when you're this kid that's discovering all these things, everything is novel, because it's the first time you've ever had that thought before in your life. So you're like, Oh, my gosh, it's the first time it ever existed. Well, no, it's not. But <laughs> for <laughs> you, it is. <laughs> yeah. So it really did come early. Like, I remember some of my poems that I wrote before the age of 15 ended up being doctored up just a little bit and then ended up in Usurper Kings, my first, uh, my first collection, you know, only two of them, but still, you know, it was so, it was something that was quite early on for me. Uh, and then the question was, was I going to stay with literature or was I going to go into film? I get into my twenties, things happen. I get into the film industry. Uh, I've had a lot of wonderful experiences and a lot of very tiring experiences and realized that the thing I loved the most was sitting down at my computer and crafting something that made one of my friends go, oh my gosh, wow. So amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Who are your favorite authors that influence you the most? I've got a list. My number one is William Gibson, the, you know, arguably one of the fathers of cyberpunk. The Sprawl trilogy was something which, especially the book Count Zero, which is the last of the Sprawl trilogy, it was thrust into my hand by a teacher when I was taking grade 12 English, and it completely changed the course of my life. <laughs> it did. Oh, it just, wow. Boom. I had been going through, you know, this Shakespeare phase and I was performing and I was doing music and, and you know, so many different kinds of things like that. And then I get handed this dog-eared copy of Count Zero by an English teacher who went, you know, I really shouldn't probably be giving you this because we're in a very, you know, religious school, but I think you'd really dig it. Yeah, <laughs> it was like, oh, you know, the the neon lights turned on instead of the angelic choir. It was some vaporwave music. And that was it. I was sunk. So William Gibson is very much one of my inspirations. Uh, some of the other ones are a little bit uh, strange. You know, Thomas Merton, the uh, 
20th century Trappist monk from Kentucky. His journals were incredible. And I'm not I'm not Catholic, but Thomas Merton wrote about that pull between wanting to do good in the world and feeling the urge to hide <laughs> and, you know, wanting to be a hermit while at the same time wanting his works to go out and and help other people. And just the struggles, just the kind of the mental struggles that Thomas Merton went through in some of these journals were incredibly formative when I was younger. Um, other authors, Sasha Roselle of My Heart is the Tempest, her prose is just fantastically beautiful. Uh, Lucas Drobnik, a very new author of Vostok, which is this wonderful literary take on cyber espionage. Uh, he just does such fabulous prose and he crafts a story in so many layers. You could read that book four times and still get something new out of it. Uh, Neil Gaiman, of course, with Neverwhere and the Sandman. <laughs> you know, the Sandman yes. was a very, a very key thing in my childhood, as was uh, Mark Wade and Alex Ross's Kingdom Come, which is oh. the DC Comics um, graphic novel which was eventually had a novelization as well, uh, basically about, you know, Batman, Superman, and the entirety of the DC Comics universe going through Armageddon. And yes. it's just the way Mark Wade wrote it. It captured me. So uh, that was definitely another influence. And then the last one would be Madeline Langle. Uh, the author of A Wrinkle in Time, Many Waters, and her nonfiction book about writing Walking on Water. Ms. Bernal, can you define to us what is a cyberpunk? Okay, so cyberpunk is a genre which comes out of punk literature, you know, and punk literature starts, you know, arguably around the 1960s, 70s, that kind of thing with poetry and then kind of goes on. It is slightly dystopic. You can argue like uh, Dr. Ilana Gomel argues that it's not dystopic, it's post-utopic, but, you know, you can kind of get into that and a lot of people's eyes glaze over, including my own. <laughs> so... <laughs> You've got this dystopic world. Usually there are, you know, gigantic corporations controlling people's lives. There's the stratification of culture uh, based on economic and socioeconomic levels. You also have body modifications going on. So there's a lot of cybernetics. You get things like, you know, console cowboys, a.k.a. this kind of sense of a hacker who's using his own mind as his computer and plugging into the matrix to go inside cyberspace and try to kind of destabilize. There's always that sort of rebellion involved and uh, usually elements of, of noir, you know, old school noir as, as well, that kind of dive in there. Um, if you know more about cyberpunk, really you have to read William Gibson. So things like Mona Lisa Overdrive, Count Zero, but even short stories like Johnny Mnemonic, they're, yes. you know, oh, <laughs> something else. Beautiful. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or old school Ghost in the Shell, if you are somebody that enjoys anime. Uh, old school Ghost in the Shell is also another one of those titular cyberpunk kind of feels. Uh, you get some, some amazing cyberpunk out of Japan, especially in the 90s um, and up. And just that idea of a ghost in the machine and what happens to humanity when we upload ourselves to a computer. Definitely interesting, yeah. Ms. Bernal. And if you describe 
the writing style of your favorite authors, what is it? Or what are they? I would say usually it has some form of postmodernist prose elements to it. So whether that's, you know, an unreliable narrator or little bits of surrealism, if we're diving into something like a little bit of magic realism where you have, you know, that real life, this is a person, these are people being characters, and then just that tiny bit of the fantastic scattered in it's got some grit it usually has a little bit of pugilism and there's always some form of poetic flow with vivid descriptions sometimes choppy dialogue and a legion of emotions in the subtext okay do you think those characteristics did you get it from your writing ah uh, i do focus on okay so in my writing i think there's an author, a beautiful friend of mine, um, R.L. Ahrens III. He's the author of the superhero sci-fi novel Aegis. I think he said it best <laughs> when he was talking about my writing. He said, she will give you, you know, she will rip your heart out, then give you chest compressions and chocolate. <laughs> and, wow. Uh, so I do tend to dive into emotions that kind of weave around the characters, whether they are live in the subtext or just right out in the front. I will rip, I will have those moments uh, where I'm going to rip your heart out, where there's going to be that emotional tension. But then with a sentence from another character, I'm going to bring some humor in and I'm going to lighten the mood because my writing is about intensity but it's also about bringing people out of that intensity because my personal philosophy on writing fiction, uh, at least for me, this is just for me now, everyone's allowed their own opinion. Everyone's allowed to write their own way. Uh, for me, what I prefer is if I'm going to ask you, the reader, to go through the valley with me, I'm also going to take you to the mountain. I'm not That's just going to leave you there. Yes, yeah. definitely. So what are your short-term and long-term goals in writing? Well, my short-term goal is to finish The Judge of Mystic Saga. It is a quartet, and Char and Ash is the first book in the quartet. And then the second book is actually a rewrite of Son of Abel, which is a book that uh, was released in 2017. And then I got such amazing feedback from everyone going, yeah, I really liked the character, but what is this world? <laughs> Why aren't you <laughs> explaining this world? I want to see the world. And I had thought, you know, Son of Abel would just be a one-off. It was just going to be its own little thing that I'd move on to my cyberpunk series. And it got enough attention that my, uh, my editor was like, you need to go back and you need to start at the proper place where people can actually introduce themselves to this mystic realm world. And so that's what we've done. That's what Charanash is. It is a new beginning. And then Son of Abel with a series of edits because we eventually just took it off the market and we're like, you know what? Okay, let's do this properly. If we're going to rewrite it, then let's just go ahead and do that. Um, Son of Abel is coming out in actually just the next few weeks. So I'm oh, very man. happy about that. <laughs> and then uh, Book of Revels and Gunungagap, the last two books of the series, they've actually been written. They're just, they're sitting there waiting a little bit of proofing and some feedback from betas, um, beta readers. So technically, my short-term goal is to finish the entire saga and have all four books out before the end of the year. That will 
release me from my long-term goal of getting back to my cyberpunk series and writing the sequel to Neon Demon. <laughs> Good luck for your Ooh. goals, Miss Bernal. But before we go on, I want to shout out to the people listening in Japan because you mentioned Japan. In yes. Tokyo, I get 75% audience share. Arigato saimasu. Hi, Tokyo. Miyazaki at 5%, Gufu at 3%, Nara at 3%, Aichi at 3%, Wakayama at 3%, Huyogo at 3%, Kumamoto at 3%, Kanagawa at 3%, and last but not the least, Hokkaido at 3%. Arigato Saimas Japan for supporting this podcast because this podcast is created to empower writers all over the world, like me, Safa Burnell. So, Miss Burnell, let's talk about Char and Oz. How did you craft it? So, being that I had already been writing within this world build for a few years by the time Char and Ash came on the table, I started by going onto my World Anvil site. So, I use a website called World Anvil. It is basically like... <laughs> Wikipedia for nerds, but you're making your own worlds out of it. Uh, uh, yes. <laughs> so, uh, shout out to Janet and Demi. Uh, they're fantastic, uh, fantastic people creating this space for everybody to world build. Uh, and so, I have my world Bible on World Anvil, and then I use their manuscript software to start crafting a scene at a time. And I'm very nonlinear when I write. If you ask me to start at the beginning and then end at the end and just write in linear order, I'm going to sit there pulling out my very purple hair. It's just not <laughs> going to happen. So I started crafting the scenes that kind of gripped me the most, either for a visual reason, like chapter one, which is called Char, which is where the, the term Char and Ash came from. It came from that very visceral image on chapter one um, of Caleb Matheson uh, walking through an area where an arsonist burned down a sacred grove. And so that came to me first. After I wrote that scene, I wrote a couple of scenes in the middle where I wanted to connect with the villain and I wanted to connect with both Stana and Cormac, who are my antagonists. And once I figured out who they were separately and who they were together as partners, then I knew that Caleb, my main character, needed a partner. And that's where the character of Tuya came from, Tuya Dragonova. And then all of a sudden I had what I was going to do with the rest of the story. So I kept building scenes from there. I worked into the grout market, which is a place that I've been getting feedback people have really enjoyed. Um, shout out to my wonderful people on Twitch. And uh, from there, I really, for me, it's not as much about planning the plot. I, I do use ClickUp to make myself an outline and to kind of keep myself accountable for what I need to do and, and what scenes to do and, and you know, for that kind of behind the scenes thing. But for me, it's about the concept, the emotional concept of the work. And so whatever I have to do to get to that emotional concept, that's what I'm going to work on next. And then making sure that I, I kind of switch that, you know, that pedal between drama and humor. And making sure that if I'm getting intense. Yeah. Interesting, Ms. Bernal. So are you a gardener or an architect in terms of writing? Mm. 
you see, I do keep really detailed plans. <laughs> yes. So I know, like, I know where we're going. I know where the characters are going. I think when it comes to character, I'm very much an architect. I know where Caleb is going to start. I know what beats he's going to come to. I know where he's going to develop in each book. And I know where he's going to end up. I know what his arc is going to be. How we get there plot-wise can sometimes modify depending on what scene I'm writing and going, hey, actually, no, hold on. Here's a trail off to the side. Is this better? But for the most part, I do plan things uh, within an entire series. And then I start writing the first book. Um, and I'm doing that for Neon Leaven too, for the Leaven cycle too. I tend to have all of the story arcs for, you know, the characters really well planned out. Um, cause those are the things I need to function. So, so let's talk about the main character of Char and Oz. What can you say about it? Caleb Matheson is a demigod. He is the grandson of Thor from the Nordic pantheon. And he is disconnected. He is disconnected from his family uh, through decisions that his father made. And he is disconnected from all of the mystic realms. He's their judge. So he is this peacekeeper slash executioner figure, basically the peace child whose birth heralded the end of the mystic war. And they created the mystic truce based on this, you know, this, crying infant that was laying there needing care and so although that was how he began through time because of course when when war ends and a truce begins that doesn't mean everybody is all of a sudden friends there's still tension there's still worries on either side you know there's still just so many different machinations going on in the background that in quote-unquote fairness all of the realms decided that they needed to go non-contact with Caleb unless he's doing his job which meant that he's completely disconnected really from everybody except a very few amount of people like Ares, the exiled Olympian god, uh, like the character of Jace, who is a carpenter who just, you know, goes around living his van life and fixes things for people wherever he goes and has some suspiciously weird angels around him at all times. And some other figures like that, you know, his uh, <laughs> his uh -huh. lover to you. Um, but for him, it was it was really an exploration into what happens when family disconnects. You know, I, I come from a broken home and I don't say that with, oh, pity me. I mean, just, you know, life happens. And so this idea of trying to discover, you know, how do you build a found family, but also how do you reconnect with your family, you know, with your birth family, with your genetic family? And where do you go with that? How do you find reconnection when something is kind of broken? And so in Charn Ash, we see Caleb, he is functional, he is working, but his life is by no means perfect. And a lot of that is just the fact that he is set apart when all he wants to do is be part of everybody else. And so the cycle of this entire quartet is going to include a lot 
of Caleb finding that sense of connection, of him coming back in, both him releasing his own pride to go up to people. He was like, yeah, I was an idiot. <laughs> you know, like, Let me back in. I'm sorry. Oh, look at me changing my ways. And then with, with others, just discovering that just because somebody else in your family had something happened to them doesn't mean that it needs to continue on through generations and that you can find healing and peace and you can come back together. And so that really is his emotional arc. Um, when it comes to him physically, he's just this big strapping Scandinavian man going around trying to make sure the people don't go around killing each other. Uh, <laughs> he's a bit of a warrior, but he would rather look for a non-combative option. Although sometimes combative options find him something that I love to explore because I've been a lifelong martial artist. So <laughs> I don't Wow, mind. interesting. And according to Arties and book reviews, I never thought a work of science fiction could be so beautiful. Wow. What are the elements that you put in your story that, wow. So that was a wonderful review that I got of Neon Lieben. And I really do focus a lot of energy on those emotional arcs. And for me, because I started in poetry, you know, Usurper Kings was my first publication, my first full-size publication, you know, um, and that is a work of poetry. I tend to be quite poetic in some of my descriptions and things as well. And so I guess for me, whether we're crafting something, you know, kind of cyberpunk like Neon Lieben or mythpunk like the Judge of Mystic Saga, even if I'm taking, you know, to, you to this battle location, to these places where, you know, horrible things happen and, you know, stuff is going wrong and things like that, I'm still going to find the beauty in what we have and that sense of never losing hope in turning things around. And I think that's another thing that I really focus on, especially in the Judge of Mystic Sega. I that kind of underlaying subplot of you have all of these different realms coming together on Earth. Earth is the neutral ground. Earth is the place where they can all interconnect. They all have their agendas. They all have their ideas. They all have, you know, kind of their essences and auras. How do you take all those disparate groups? Just like how do we take all of the disparate groups in our world? And how do we find that togetherness that we can be stronger unified not homogenous but unified in all of our beautiful differences in all of our you know wonderful unique pieces of culture that we should keep and then how do we find those pieces that are like yeah you know what zeus you suck <laughs> <laughs> yes you <Zeus, Zeus> sucks <laughs> well you get to see what happens to zeus in charmed ash uh <laughs> Oh, wow. Interesting. Oh, oh yeah. So do you think Charanas is a good for a series or a motion picture? I would say a series, like a, like a, a TV series. My stories tend to be a little bit too character complex for 90 minutes. And this is something I struggled with because, again, I started in film. And so looking at the storylines, I'm like, yeah, I could tell one of these two plots in this book in 90 minutes. I couldn't tell both. So what do you get rid of? 
it's like, oh man, but you know, if I get rid of all this, what, what have we got? And then, you know, it's, <laughs> I remember my, uh, my editor was like, you, you get a TV series. That's what you go for. And, uh, spoiler alert, we are actually developing a, um, a audio series called Waxwing. And it is, you know, something that will happen even before the events of Charnash. And it's tangential characters, you know, they're characters that are mentioned in Charandash, but they're not main characters by any means. And so we are attempting an audio series just to see how we can play with that idea of how much time do we need for each one of these things before we start pitching for either a, like a series or a, a movie. But before we go on, I'm inviting you to listen to my other podcast, Food 101, our third season with Chef Alessandro, one of the best executive chef in one of the best restaurants in downtown Toronto. So please do listen. Food 101. Mm. Plus one more. Food 101, Volume 1, Basics. Volume 2, Fundamentals. Volume 3, Essentials. Out already. Available on Amazon and leading online bookstores worldwide. It's all about my 100 episodes of my first season on Food 101. So please do check. It's all about how to make a food delicious. Miss Bernal, what is the best highlight of charting us? Honestly, there's there's two. One is the grout market. Everyone that has read the book so far has said that that was the coolest setting and to look out for it. Two would be Zeus. Oh. <laughs> so a little bit of a spoiler. When we first meet Zeus in Charn Ash, he is this incontinent man sitting in a wheelchair in the middle of a nursing home. Everyone around him is fawning over the fact that his kids visit all the time. And all he can do is grip the arms of his wheelchair and go, I freaking hate those guys. <laughs> so, oh, my goodness. And That's then interesting. Oh, yeah. And then shenanigans happen because, of course, they do. Um, and so I if I was going to tell a story with Zeus in it and as a mythologist, of course, Zeus is a very important figure. So how do you do it? You know, Zeus by himself is like, how do you, how do you tell the story? Yikes. You know, you look at some of his myths. You make fun of the guy. Uh, so <laughs> I really did that. Uh, but I also gave him some some zingers. So. If you describe Zeus in Greek mythology, how would you describe it? I think in Greek mythology, I would describe Zeus as this perilous, commanding king of kings. You know, he knows what he wants. He looks at everything and sees that it's his. And so he can do with it what he will. He is absolutely not somebody that would even garner a little bit of dissension. I think you can also see some of his behaviors, especially when it comes to his son, Ares, and how he belittles Ares, one, because we have a lot more Athenian written stuff than we have of other places. But two, um, he usurped his father his father usurped his father so who's the next person in line to usurp him probably Ares so that's where I get a lot of that kind of drama between Zeus and Ares you know him constantly trying to push his son down uh, but really this dominant and perilous and quite problematic by today's standards kind of ruler <laughs> you know thoroughly yes. problematic it, it Zeus was the guy, like Zeus was the god that kings and princes prayed to. Yes. You know, the every man did not pray to, Air, to Zeus. 
the everyman prayed to Ares. <laughs> or, 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 <laughs> yes. like, you know, uh, Zeus was the one that was in charge of all these royals and kings. So he was completely detached from the every person. And so you see that part of it, too. And you're like, oh, yeah, OK. So you're really just a insert unsavory word here that I'm not sure is podcast appropriate. So I'm not going to say it like, <laughs> you know, so you take that. And my view of Zeus when I put him into the Judge of Mystic saga is that he was that character. He was that person. He was that problematic figure throughout history. But that was thousands of years ago. And now... Ares and Hephaestus stuffed him in an old folks home with, and they were just nice enough to the nurses and to everybody in that old folks home that all of those nurses and all of those people around Zeus go, oh, isn't it so wonderful? Oh, Zeusy, you have such <laughs> lovely kids. Yes. Oh. <laughs> Meanwhile, Zeus is like, nah, 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 nah. come on. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so Miss Bernal, Judge of Mystic Saga, what behind the title of your quartet? So the Judge of Mystic Saga, I uh, use the word saga because of the tie to Nordic mythology and Nordic folklore with the character of Caleb. And with the fact that as we continue going through this series, I'm going to dive more and more into Nordic folklore and also the yeah, folklore and the mythology of the Sami people uh, from you know the Scandinavian regions as well. Uh, and Judge of Mystics, one, because the main character is the judge, that's his title, and of Mystics, because I wanted to make sure that everybody knew that this was something mythical, this is something magical, this is is this is separate from my, science, my true science fiction work, uh, this one's more magic realism, going into myth punk, and so that way it was able to kind of tie in all these different world mythologies, if every world mythology had its own realm. And they all coalesced on the planet Earth, what would happen? And so I use that term mystic just as a sort of kind of overall umbrella term for different mythological identities and pantheons. Can you compare Charlinas to the Song of Achilles? Okay, so uh, the Song of Achilles is first person narrative and from the perspective of Patroclus. And so my book is third person, you know, it's third person limited when it comes to narration. So right there from the beginning, we have different voices. Um, I find that the character reflection that we get from Patroclus in Song of Achilles is particularly beautiful and very intimate in a way we don't necessarily completely get yet in Char and Ash because there's just so much going on. Um, we still get to see those emotions, but we don't get the same sort of intimate view and those pause moments. I think one thing that I really loved about um, the Song of Achilles was having so many places where Patroclus just kind of stops and zones in on a moment. Yes. And you get those layers and he's adding in all of this information about his emotions and what he thinks is going on in Achilles' head. And, you know, later on there's Briseis and you've got all this different stuff happening. And yet again, Odysseus is a jerk and you're kind of moving on in that way and you're able to sort of stop and pause and linger. I don't have quite as many moments of stopping and pausing and lingering. I have a couple of chapters that do that, but for the most part, I'm driving forward to Caleb and Tuya trying to locate Stana before she does more damage. Um, 
I think style-wise, when it comes to the writing, well, Judge of Mystic Saga, I think the biggest thing that separates um, it from something like Song of Achilles is that Judge of Mystic Saga takes place in Vancouver. Wow. It's not quite urban fantasy, but I'm taking that magic realism approach of having a recognizable world with bits of the fantastic in it, as opposed to being completely thrust back into this sort of fictionalization of the ancient world. Um, so it is, it's every day, you know, at one point we're in a battle scene in Stanley park, you yes. know, at another point we are in Dover. It, the actual, the novel starts off in chapter one in Dover on the roadside off the A roads. And then uh, we're in Canterbury for another part of it. And, you know, I love driving around in Canterbury. So uh, that scene was actually based on my recent travels, you know, uh, a year ago to see my sister um, who lives in Manchester. So hi, Sonia, darling. <laughs> I promised so, I'd shut you out. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> so did, uh, challenge us, if you go back and revise the book itself, which part of the book you want to revise? I think the most challenging part of the book is the fact that I'm a punk. To be a punk, you have to be rebellious in some form of way. And my life is fairly straight and narrow when it comes to most things, you know. Um, but when it comes to using certain mythological or religious figures, I get a little punky. <laughs> um, so I wonder if one of the characters that I have in the book, this character named Jace, if I could have chosen a different mythological figure and not a character who is a carpenter who was resurrected after he died at the age of 33 and then ends up, you know, basically traveling around the entire world, fixing people's problems, you know, and in my head, it was a loving homage, you know, to a figure that I was raised believing in. Um, and yet, I wonder if it pushed things a little too far to have that character there and to have Jace going around and basically, okay, here's the second coming, you know, here he comes back down to earth, takes a look at the place and goes, look at this mess, grabs a tool belt <laughs> and just starts helping people. And like, what do you do with that? What do you do when this, you know, historical and religious figure, you know, in this fiction piece comes back down and goes, ah, well, we can't, this is a mess. Like, what did you do? Oh my God, that's it. Okay, yeah, hand me that. I'm going to fix this. And then I'm going to fix that. And just goes around fixing seemingly infinitesimal things, but they are so important. So I think that I could have potentially kind of taken another look at, I think there's one chapter with the fey court, with the fairy court that I wouldn't mind taking another crack at if I did. And that would be because of length. It was a fairly short section. I think I could have built in more about what the Fae are and what the Fae think. And a little bit more of the political situation that I allude to with the character of Cormac. Cormac of the Willow. Um, he is a Willow Fae. He's also the Prince Consort of the High Fae Queen, Queen Selica. And I allude to all of this political tension in the Fae lands. But when we actually see the Fae lands, I don't, like, I could have gone more in depth there. I could have added another 400 words if I wanted to. You know, it was that kind of thing. I think that's where I would spend my time 
So which part of Charinas you enjoy the most? Amber is a precious stone, which is a chapter in the middle of the book. It is one of my, you know, like we were saying about the Song of Achilles, how Patroclus kind of takes a step back once in a while and kind of, you know, gets into this philosophical spot. For me, uh, Amber is a precious stone is that kind of chapter for me. And it happens after the first big dust up between Caleb Tuya and Stana, our antagonist. All of a sudden, the world's turned upside down. They're discovering things that were like, oh, mind blown. And Tuya gets injured and needs help. And so Caleb takes her to a place where they can, in privacy, just sort of heal. And it gets very quiet and it gets very emotional. And I won't spoil it for anyone who's going to read it, but somebody else comes in to help them. And then Caleb has a couple of really tough conversations, uh, beautiful conversations though, that end well, you know, I think that one was my favorite to write. I think my favorite reading the book back would have to be the, uh, the ritual ground, which is a, a chapter right at the end and it does have Zeus in it. So (laughs) (laughs) it has that mixture of Zeus's kind of like sardonic misogynist hilarity that everyone just tells him to like, Oh, shush. (laughs) Oh, be quiet. You know? Uh, Well, at the same time, it also has this epic battle scene. It is the final standoff between Caleb and Aitko and, you know, and Stana for this book, not the final, final one, because Stana reoccurs in, in the other books um, of the Book of Rebels. Huge climax, people. Charinas, <laughs> let's support Miss Safa Burnell, especially she is from British Columbia, people. I got 99% of the share in British Columbia, so please support her because Charinas better than uh, the song of Achilles. Right, Miss Burnell? <laughs> oh, you know what? Hey, you said it, I'll believe it. <laughs> when I see it. <laughs> I love the song of Achilles, by the way. I loved it. Like, <laughs> yes, I love it too, but yeah. the way you describe it, this is more intense. This is more more interesting in terms of power and especially Zeus. I love Zeus. <laughs> I think you'll enjoy what happens. <laughs> oh, oh, that's me. Awesome. Can you please invite our listeners to buy all your books? I would love it if everyone supported my work by purchasing my books, Usurper King's Neon Lieben, Cage Wire, and my newest, my baby, my lovely dream, Char and Ash. If you are looking for a buy link, it is books to the number two, read.com slash Char and Ash. And that'll take you everywhere. It is everywhere from Amazon to Barnes and Nobles to Saxo in Scandinavia to Gardeners and uh, Powell's in the United States. It's uh, you can find it basically anywhere books are sold. So I would very yes. much appreciate if you picked up a copy, whether digital paperback, uh, there is no hardcover for Charned Ash. That is something that's going to happen when the entire series is out. Uh, but right now it is available in paperback and digital and soon audiobook what is your advice or message for those aspiring writers out there that they want to publish their novel always get 
other sets of eyes. I see a lot of, um, I see a lot of writers on Twitch and other platforms online. And again, I offer free beta reads twice a week on Twitch on Usurper Kings every Tuesday and Thursday. So for the past few years, I've been seeing tons of material coming through from such brilliant writers who, you know, you've got some some finessing to do, but all of us have finessing to do. You never stop learning how to write something better and more concise. You just need to make sure that you always have somebody else's eyes on your work, not just some, you know, a friend or a family member that's like, oh, yeah, I loved it. Somebody who will be honest with you and yet at the same time build you up through that honesty. Somebody who knows literature, you know, whether that is finding writing circles to join and workshopping each other's work, whether that's going the traditional route and, you know, getting edited or going small press or indie, you know, always make sure you have somebody else, you know, at least one or two people reading your work and letting you know where certain things are because, you know, we are such wonderful beings and we have such wonderful blinders <laughs> when it comes to certain <laughs> things. We can't always see the things that, you know, that we repeat, the things that we do. And then all of a sudden they're put in front of us and we're like, oh, yes, you're right. I did repeat that one phrase 63 times in the novel. Oh, wow. Okay. Time to go back again. <laughs> and Definitely. <laughs> So how did you minimize those uh, stuff, Ms. Uh, Bernal? So I, well, my editor will go over it once I finished going over it myself, you know, my betas as well, you know, after they, you know, when it's their turn. I use a software called Autocrit. Um, there's a couple softwares out there that I, I use. One is the Hemingway editor. I love the Hemingway editor. It's a free browser-based editor that you just put your stuff in and it'll highlight whether or not something is difficult to read, whether it's almost impossible to read. What's the reading level? Are there any words that you could remove or is there anything that's too passive? Um, that is absolutely free. It's HemingwayEditor.com and uh, that one's wonderful, but I use Autocrit. And Autocrit is an algorithmic based program where you can both, you know, use it as a word processor, but also take your writing through a whole bunch of different summary reports, including repetitions. Oh. <laughs> and I will run that like I did this for Charon Ash because for some reason, the edge of just uh, edge of was 63 times. Wow. Before, you know, before I was done that draft and I was like, oh, my goodness, <laughs> you know, but I caught it <laughs> and I changed it and I reduced it down to uh, what was it like four, you know, <laughs> um, so I, I do use software. I use Autocrit and it's been fantastic. Uh, I really do love that software. Very well said, Miss Burnell and catch you next week. Miss Burnell, thank you for your time. And thank you for having me. I'm glad we were able to talk. Marigan people, see you soon.